A fictitious story is told about the Transcontinental Railroad, that that famous railroad that first connected America across its girth. A crew had worked together for many months as they lay mile after mile of track across the nation. I even found an authentic picture of that one. Hold on. It's somewhere. There it is. Yeah, it's a little blurry, but they didn't have iPhones yet. It was hard and grueling work, and many of the men soon became discontent in their work, and the morale began to drop as the days became long, miserable, and frustrating. Except for one man, he rose each day, took his morning meal, and went to work with diligence and peace. Day after day, he toiled without complaint and with excellence. He seemed to take particular pride in each tie being straight and level, each spike being well-placed and driven completely home. And he would even walk the track at the end of the day with an eye for shoddy work and stop to correct the situation before heading to the encampment for his own dinner. Eventually, one of the men he worked with approached him to ask about this behavior. Friend, why do you toil so? Do you not see how poorly we are paid for such a hard task? I do, he replied. Do you not see how poor our food is, how hard our bunks are at night? I've noticed, the man said, scratching his head. Are you not mindful of how our bodies ache each day, how blistered our hands have become? Can you ignore the sun that burns us across the deserts and the storms that torment us in the mountains? Do you not feel the loneliness of endless days in the wilderness and how little our work seems to be noticed or appreciated by a single soul? At this, the man simply cocked his head questioningly and his companion went on. Then why, if I may ask, do you seem to enjoy laying track so much when the rest of us are frustrated to distraction? Oh, said the man, I don't have any great love for the difficulty of the task, if that's what you mean. But, he went on, the way I see it, I'm not just laying a railroad, I'm laying a future. A future that will carry my family and my country to a better place just as soon as we can get this project finished. And In our passage this morning, Paul is bringing his vision of a glorious future for the saints in resurrection to a very practical end in calling them to the task as hard and as uncomfortable as it may be and calling them to that task in light of what it represents. And he writes simply in 1 Corinthians 15:58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And Paul is challenging Christians to see beyond the hardships they face and the temptations that pull at them and to work with faithfulness in the cause of Christ. And I'd be willing to bet many of us this morning feel a little like those frustrated railroad workers in the story. Some of us are so distracted by sin that we have all but abandoned the work of the Lord entirely. Some of us are working hard but frustrated that our work for the Lord doesn't seem to be working, doesn't seem to be accomplishing what we think it should, at least not on our timetable, and that it isn't appreciated by others. 
And many here, perhaps especially some of our mothers with young children, are wondering how are we supposed to be getting any work for the Lord done at all when the constant press of household work and the needs of the family and all the other things in life use up all the time and more than all the energy at our disposal. And I hope we can all be encouraged by our passage this morning. Because it paints a brief but a compelling picture of how we can take courage in whatever sphere of gospel toil God has placed us in. Because for Paul, this topic was personal. This verse was likely one that he recited to his own soul many times. A passage I'd like to look at briefly to help us see this in the life of Paul before we dive into 1 Corinthians is found in Colossians 1. And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians 1 as you're able. I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. We'll be reading in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 21, Paul writes about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it has accomplished for us. And he writes this, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the example of men like Paul, who labored, who strove according to your power to see the gospel furthered, knowing that it was not going to be in the strength of their own might that they would see any progress made, but desiring because they loved you so dearly and they longed so much to see others love you dearly that they were willing to invest themselves entirely in whatever work you called them to do. May we be encouraged to follow their example and to rest in the same strengthening power as they did. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, this is Paul's description of the hard work of gospel ministry. He suffered, he labored, he strove in ministry so that he might remain true to the good news of Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
and so that he might see every person he ministered to complete in Christ by the power of God. And that is the same vision that Paul is giving to the Corinthians as he comes to conclude chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians 15:58, where Paul begins this way, Therefore, my beloved brethren... This is a, a common entreaty. Paul's used it several times already in this letter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he's reaching a conclusion and he's sharing that conclusion with his beloved brethren. And before we get to his argument, I think as we often have, it's worth pausing just to once again notice Paul's heart. I think many of us would have stayed with the tone set in verse 36 and thrown another you fools in at this point. But that's not what Paul does. Clearly, he's willing to call them out for their folly when it needs to be done. He just did that a few verses ago. But Paul is unwilling ever to wander far from the greater truth, which is that in Christ, this church he writes to is made up of beloved family. Beloved even when they mock him. Brethren even when they demonstrate such sinfulness and such immaturity. There is no gospel ministry in the home, with our neighbors, in the church. There is no gospel ministry that doesn't involve dealing with difficult people. And if you doubt me, look in a mirror. <laughs> We're difficult people. There's a great example in this book of how to speak difficult truth without embarrassment, without compromise, but how to do so in love in uncompromising love. Not only is Paul's heart a wonderful thing to see here, though, his argument that he is making is also really spectacular. We've been building to this for weeks. When we finally reach this therefore in verse 58, I want us to go back real quick and, and I want us to remember the journey that has brought us here over the last couple of months in this amazing chapter and uh, for those of you who have to write everything down, I'll put the punchline up on the screen now, and then uh, you don't have to panic trying to write it down really fast at the end. Drum roll. There it is. Thank you. In verses 1 through 11, Paul declares that the message of the gospel is a message of Christ's death for sin and resurrection in victory from the dead. This is the heart of the good news, proclaimed from the beginning and the basis of our Christian faith. Therefore, in verses 12 through 19, we saw that denying the idea of physical resurrection from the dead becomes a denial of the gospel and renders it null and void. Without biblical doctrine, without the biblical doctrine or the biblical teaching of resurrection from the dead, we aren't saved. We are, in fact, pitiable fools with a worthless faith. However, in verses 20 to 28, Jesus did rise from the dead. And that is a big deal for all of us. Because just as Adam was able to pass on death to all who followed in his line, so Jesus has conferred resurrection power to all who follow in his line by faith. Otherwise, in verses 29 to 34... Why are we enduring such difficulty in life and ministry for the sake of Jesus if we cannot in him triumph over death? We might as well party and enjoy life because this life is all we get. And there's the rub. Behind a lot of resurrection denial is a desire to have an excuse 
for sinful living. So we must be careful the company we keep and turn from sin. But I still don't understand how this is supposed to work, you might say. And so in verses 35 to 49, we are called to just look at the resurrection and glory pictures that God has filled creation with. From the way seeds turn into plants to the distinctions between biological and cosmological glory, we see the pattern all around us. What is laid down in death in one form is often taken up in glory in another form. There is no one-size-fits-all glory, but a universe of diversity demonstrating God's ability to fit form to purpose perfectly. And for us, that is being sown as a seed, as a natural body, and being raised up in the fullness of a heavenly body, just like Jesus. Hallelujah, we might say, but when? And Paul tells us in verses 50 to 57, at the end of this age, at a moment known only to the Father, a moment that could be at any moment now, with a shout, the calling up of the redeemed will be announced, and we will be raised from the dead, or changed in an instant from perishable into imperishable. And as we rise to meet our Savior in the air, we shall be the fulfillment of a millennia-old taunt, mocking the impotence of death, sin, and the law in the face of the total victory of Jesus Christ. Joy of joys, that victory which he has won, will be given to all who are his to be shared and enjoyed forever. So now what? And that brings us to verse 58 and what you see on the screen. In light of all of that, Paul says, make your life this accumulating crescendo of uncompromising gospel work, looking ever forward to an eternal purpose. It isn't a complicated message, but it is a message that encapsulates where we live every day. And if we understand the victory that is ours in Christ, first of all, Paul says we are not going to be so easily pushed around by the things of this world that perish. If you're taking notes this morning, that's our first point, that we won't be pushed by what perishes in the toil of the triumphant. Paul goes on to say, after introducing this topic, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable. The words that Paul uses here are actually fairly uncommon in the New Testament. That word steadfast only occurs three times, twice in this book. Once in the letter to the Colossians that we just read when we opened. And the word immovable only occurs here. And I think Paul chooses some slightly unusual words because he's trying to make a bit of a specific emphasis. There's another word in the New Testament that often is translated steadfast. And it comes from the root that means to remain, to call, to stay. It's a word that, that says don't wander off somewhere. But the words in this verse have a slightly different emphasis. They both refer to being the kind of thing that can't be moved. And maybe a way to describe the difference is this. Imagine you're in a car and you're going down the highway and you're free to take any exit you want. But if you've got that GPS navigation, right, every time you come to like a fork in the freeway, it pops on and says, continue on I-90, 200 miles, Right? It's your GPS's way of saying, be steadfast, be steadfast. Do not abandon the road. Continue. 
You don't have to give the same instructions, however, to a brick that's been mortared into a wall. You don't walk by the bricks and be like, just stay there. Because they can't do otherwise. They've been affixed in place. They've been made and rendered immovable. And this is the kind of language that Paul is using here. The proper response to understanding the victory of Christ and resurrection from the dead is a life fixed in place that should not and cannot be moved. Well, moved how? What does he mean by don't move? What does he mean by be, be fixed in place? Well, as we've seen in the, in the whole context of this book, he's talking about being moved from faithful commitment to the gospel to unrighteousness and compromise. That's been the lessons of the entire book, has it not? Focus on Jesus Christ. Stop fighting about all of these pastors that are your favorite. Focus on Jesus Christ and stop trying to elevate one of you over another. Focus on Jesus Christ and stop making communion about yourselves and a selfish thing. Focus on Jesus Christ and stop using your marriages and your lawsuits as opportunities to abuse one another. Stop compromising and drifting away from what you were taught. We also see that Paul is continuing the specific application he already gave in verse 34, right? He already teased his conclusion midway through this chapter. If we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection in him, then we should be sober-minded and stop sinning. And we also see this in our own verse, placed opposite to abounding in the work of the Lord, And so our steadfastness is a way of remaining in faithful obedience and guarding against being moved away from that. And as Paul calls us to this, I believe he's leaning heavily on the wisdom and language of the Old Testament here. Steadfastness and righteousness is linked with life. All the way back in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 11, 19, I'll try to put some of these up on the screen for you, says this, he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Turning turning to purity and having a steadfast spirit is the correct longing of a heart confronted with sin as David declared in Psalm 51.10 when he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. But what is it then that will mortar the bricks of our heart into place for practical holiness? Well, we see a number of verses that all kind of give the same drumbeat on this. The first speaking negatively of the Israelites who doubted God in the wilderness and complained about God in the wilderness. In Psalm 78, 37, we read, Their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant, they abandoned the promises of God. But in contrast, we are told for the blessed man who fears the Lord, that Psalm 112.7, he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Or as Isaiah put it, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. I think the glue that holds this whole thing together is pretty clear. The steadfast life of a believer is a life of trust 
in the promises of God. And that is why Paul is holding those promises forth to the Corinthians so emphatically and at such length because he wants them to have their vision filled with what God has declared, with what God has promised, so that it will evoke their trust in him entirely. And what promise could steady us more than a sure hope of resurrection from the dead and eternal glory in the presence of our great Savior? But our trust in God has many enemies. And we must be vigilant. Paul would not declare to us, be steadfast, be immovable, if it were not the case that we could easily not be so. What is it that erodes our trust in the promises of God? You could list many particulars, but I think you can largely group them into two categories. And the first is those things which distract us. Those things which distract us. And do we not live in a world of distractions, which even if not directly an attack on the promises of God, take our eyes off of them anyway? Busy schedules put together and carried out without thought of God. It's easy, isn't it? So many of us are noticing summer is not a break. All of a sudden, it feels like we blinked and we're already making plans for Christmas, hoping things will slow down. And it is so easy in the craziness of schedules for our eyes to move off of the God that we are to be living for. Or maybe we could call it a suburban syndrome. It's so easy to have this twin reality in suburbia where at At once, you're living in reality fairly comfortably so that you do not feel your need. And yet, at the same time, you feel unbelievably discontent and you long so much for more of the things of this world. And and so you do not feel your real need that you would call out to God and you feel a need you don't have and so you pursue things that cannot satisfy and it's so easy to get caught up in that rat race or entertainment poisoning the constant barrage of angry news and social media messaging and video binge watching and endless sports games and video game marathons and and on and on especially just through the digital threads weave through society we are often so quickly pulled into this world of distraction that provokes our anger and frustration at temporal things without a view of the God of heaven that appeals to the lusts of our flesh and draws us in so that we would try to be satisfied with lesser things instead of feeding on the God who can satisfy the real needs of the soul. Billions of dollars spent researching how they can get us to swipe to one more video, watch one more episode, play one more level, tune into one more game, And the hours slip away like sand in the glass. We are surrounded by distractions. And almost everything we just talked about at some level can be a part of our lives that is not sinful. If you watched a show this week, you're not necessarily a bad person. 
But how many of us, and I, and I put myself right in the middle of this because I'm a news junkie. I love reading. And I've noticed my kids starting to say, Papa, please put your screen down. That's a warning. How many of us have been thoughtful and intentional this last week that in our calendars, in our entertainment, in our rhythms of living, we have been mindful of the promises of God and have sought to live our lives trusting in those. Secondly, we can see our trust in God's promises eroded by that which deceives us. By that which deceives us. There is no question that we are in a war over truth in our culture. And it's a war that has been brewing for decades, but the rate at which it has broken out in the open in our culture is really quite astonishing. And just as a plea from a youth pastor, any of you parents who have youth growing up in this culture, please understand they are not facing the same thing that you did at their age. The battle lines have moved precipitously. And it's a scary world out there. The ideas that our children are being steeped in. But it comes back always to the basic questions of life. What is the biggest problem with this world? And if the answer is not sin... If the answer is anything but, if it's how I feel, social injustice, climate change. If the answer is anything but sin, you will spend your life chasing as most important what doesn't matter most. Who are we and how are we to live? If we do not understand that we are beings created in the image of God whose joy and satisfaction will be found only in a right relationship with our Creator through Jesus Christ, then we are unmoored. And it is not surprising then that we have placed the autonomy of self at the top of our importance stack, that we are willing to kill our babies for it, we are willing to mutilate our bodies for it, we are able, willing to deny the most basic confessions of reality so that I might become what I feel instead of become what I am. And undergirding all of that is the question, what source of authority is to be trusted? And this has almost always been the ultimate and the real battle line. Who can tell me what is true? And if it is not the God who knows all things, who has revealed himself to us in his holy word, then we will look anywhere and eventually everywhere else. And so we have a world where our authority is ourselves, where the authority is faceless science, where the authority is the experts, whoever they are, where the authority is the government, where the authority is social consensus, where the authority constantly evolves and changes in a cruel way that keeps saying, no, this time we'll make you happy. And it's not new because Paul writes to a church pulled apart by those same forces. 
their own cultural distractions, their own cultural pressures, their own cultural authorities, and the things that appealed to them were pulling them apart. And Paul says, stop, look at Christ, and look at your future, and look at the victory and the hope you have in him, and let that steady your soul, and trust in those things, so that you will become immovable, ready then to abound. And so Paul points the Corinthians to this obedient life that ought to flow out of our trust in God. What builds our trust in God? God's word and obedient living. If you want to see the themes that occur over and over in scripture, what builds your trust in God? Reading what he said and then watching him prove it. Reading what he said and watching him prove it in your life. And that's our second point this morning. We will work for what awaits us. As those who toil as the triumphant in Christ, we're not going to get pushed around by the things of this world that are perishable, that are passing away. We'll be able to look beyond them because we've seen the eternal promises of God. And for that reason, we will work faithfully daily for what awaits us, for what is still coming. And so Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul's being very emphatic here. He takes work and then he's like, let's stick always on there and abounding on there so that we get the point. Always abounding at all times with consistent fruitfulness Engage in the work of the Lord. What is this work of the Lord? What is this your toil that he's speaking of? I think if you look through scripture, you'll see it's the hard work and the hardships required by daily gospel-focused living. The hard work and the hardships required by daily gospel-focused living. That word work we see throughout Paul's writings in particular and that almost always refers to the daily tasks and the daily choices that obediently flow from our salvation. And I want to hammer this a little bit because we don't want to get this backwards. And Paul does a great job of ordering it for us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, a passage many of us have memorized in Sunday school or something along the, over the years. In Ephesians 2, 8, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Our salvation rests upon the grace of God, and even our faith itself is a gift of God. Verse 9, so that it's not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. What we are in Christ is going to always be and only be to the glory of the God who saves sinners. Yet, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When Paul says to abound in the work of the Lord, he is talking about abounding in these specific acts and these specific decisions and the daily things that we do that flow from being saved by grace. 
He is not calling the Corinthians, hey, if you don't want to miss out on heaven, you better get a lot betterer or you're not going to make the cut. He's not trying to intimidate them into a new works-based system so that they can feel like, okay, I hope now I've earned my place in that resurrection glory. No, he just told us Christ did it all. He already achieved the victory. He's going to give that victory to you. And that victory has wiped away death. And it's wiped away what allows death to have its power, which is sin. And it's wiped away what allows sin to have its power, which is the law. He just told them, you can rest in the grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus that will result by faith in your presence with him forever in resurrection. So what he is calling them here to is not a works-based life. But he's calling them to a works-filled life. A life that in response to the glorious promises of God, in gratitude for the salvation that is theirs, cannot help but be filled with those daily evidences of God's work in them for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the gospel. And then he also uses this word toil. Toil is a word used in the Gospels almost exclusively for something that is annoying, bothersome, or difficult. Like every time you see like a, the judge getting pestered by the persistent widow, or every time you see somebody tapping on Jesus' shoulder, and it was the disciples were like, why are you bothering him? Almost any time you see somebody annoyed, frustrated, it's this word. It means something that's not fun. But in the letters of the New Testament, almost every single use of this word is referring exclusively to efforts undertaken to honor Jesus and further the gospel in difficult circumstances. And so for some, they say it's almost a technical word where Paul takes this word that just means like really hard and annoying. And he takes that and he says, that's a perfect word to describe what it's like to try to just push through all the hard things you're going to run into when you're trying to serve Jesus Christ. Because it's hard. It includes all the efforts involved in living the Christian life. Which means, are you lovingly sharing the gospel with someone, knowing it could result in ridicule or estrangement? You're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to them faithfully, and they're not necessarily responding to that well, and your heart is aching for trying to figure out, how do I share good news with this dear friend? That's the work of the Lord. But also... Are you changing diapers as an expression of loving care for your children so that they will grow up understanding the love of God for them? And they stink. And it's always at three in the morning. And you're tired and nobody sees and the baby doesn't care. But you're doing it for the Lord because he's given you that position of responsibility for that child. This is the work of the Lord for you. Whatever your role, whatever your job, whatever your station in life, what can you do to abound in those things that make the most of every opportunity to further the interests of our king? Because there is no work too menial or insignificant to qualify if it is what God has put before you. There is no task worth doing that can't become a work of the Lord when it is done for his glory. 
And conversely, there is no task so inherently spiritual that it cannot be wood, hay, and stubble when it is done disconnected from having our eyes fixed on the promises of God. And it is this simple fact that allows us to escape the most frustratingly hopeless aspect of life in this fallen world. And that is what Solomon wrote about so many years before in the book of Ecclesiastes when he looked at this world and all that was in it and said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon looked at life as he put it under the sun. He says, if you look at this world and everything that is in it from the perspective of a godless view, then this world is stuck It's stuck in endless cycles. It's stuck because the past is forgotten. It's stuck because the future is unknowable. It's stuck because the present is ultimately meaningless. Nothing completely satisfies on its own, and we can't guarantee the outcome of any work, and then we all die. And Solomon says it does not matter what you pursue in this life. If God is not in view, that is the inevitable conclusion even if you go to your grave not realizing it. But we know a secret. And it's a secret that Paul leaves the Corinthians with. Our life is abounding in this annoying hard work. Our life is abounding in these daily tasks and works that God has given us to do. Why? In a world full of vanity, because we know something We know all our toil is not in vain when Jesus is a part of it. That when you put him back in the picture, it changes everything. And that all those by themselves, meaningless, insignificant things in life, all of a sudden become works of the Lord when they're done in the Lord. When Jesus becomes attached to it, it goes from vanity to profitable from useless to of eternal significance. And yes, that includes the things that don't seem to work out. This is our great hope in Christ, that because he conquered death, and through faith we are in him, and by that great relationship we've been given victory over death with Christ, and that great hope awaits us in the future, that then we can in Christ live every single day whether it's the big things that we would normally think of as, wow, that's just a great spiritual ministry I have, to the little things that we do that nobody else will ever notice and nobody else seems to care about, but we're done for him. All of that we can know was worthwhile, was of value, because Jesus was a part of it. And I hope that's encouraging to some of you to realize if God's called you into a season where it doesn't seem like you can do a lot, where it doesn't seem like you can accomplish a lot, you can rest in knowing whatever it is that God has called you and allowed you to do, whatever it is, it's not in vain. And for those of you who perhaps are so distracted and so deceived by the world that you're realizing my entire life is being spent to exhaustion on things that have no view of the promises of God, then this is your call That will not satisfy. That is vain. Come and spend your life for that 
which matters in our Savior. Make your life, as we began, an accumulating crescendo of uncompromising gospel work, looking to an eternal purpose. And that's a good way to spend a busy summer. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me as the music team comes forward to close us this morning? Father, we are grateful to be those who have in grace been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and all of the faithful promises that are ours in Christ to be able to rest in your unchanging grace without fear. And I pray that you would grant to us the ability to live in that reality to find a rest for our soul that will lead into a gospel-minded, fruitful living wherein others can see our good works and give glory to you in heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.